0: Great 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards, who is very difficult to understand at times if you read any of his works, said these words, and see if you can kind of grasp what he's trying to say here, the kind of religion that God requires. Now, when he uses the term religion, he's not using it in the sense that we often use it today. He's using it in a faithful sense, Christianity. Christianity. The kind of religion that God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless woodings such as I would do such and such a thing. Those weak inclinations that lack convictions, that raise us little above indifference, but God in his word greatly insists that we be in good earnest, fervent in spirit, And that our hearts be engaged vigorously in our religion, unquote. That last thought that I want you to catch and hold on to. That God in his word greatly insists that our hearts be engaged vigorously in our religion. Becoming a contagious Christian means that we will be vigorously engaged in our faith fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, as Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says. I know that many of you, and myself included, want to share Christ with people, am I right? In fact, you may want it vigorously, but maybe somewhere deep inside of you, you lack the confidence in your ability to break through that communication barrier. Your greatest fear is, Might be that right in the middle of a conversation, someone might actually ask you without warning, so what's your personal story? It begs every one of us in the room to answer the unspoken question, what would you do in a situation like that? Would you be able to take that open door to the point of sharing Christ with that person? And how would you do it? Suppose someone were to ask you that question right now. Suppose I were to just pick somebody out of the congregation and bring you up on stage. And I put my arm around your shoulder and I go, so what's your story? Tell us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I should try that. How will you do that? I remember once at a pastor's retreat, that happened to me in a group setting. Without warning, without time for planning, without time for preparation, I was asked to share my story, my spiritual journey of faith. It was impromptu, and it was absolutely unavoidable, (laughs) short of running out of the room. I was literally in a room full of other pastors and ministry leaders, one of which I found out later, had pastored in a church who he was on staff with J. Vernon McGee. It was intimidating, to say the least, and at the same time, it was wonderful. Well since then I've had that question asked dozens of times in various situations, uh, once over the phone in a radio interview, What would you say? You've got about five minutes now to tell the story about how you came to Christ and make it meaningful to the person that you're talking to. Could you do it? And we should be able to do that, shouldn't we? Because part of becoming a contagious Christian is preparing yourself to tell your particular story to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is within you with gentleness and respect. If you're beginning to apply the things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, I guarantee that you will get the opportunity to tell your story at some point in time. And your story is tremendously important if you are a believer in Christ. And so I want to, this is going to be a very practical message today. Almost painstakingly practical give you three practical reasons why your story is important. Number one, people are interested in it. People are interested. It's the principle of personal reciprocation. When you show an interest in others, they will usually return the favor. So if you are routinely praying for the people that you are involved in building relationships with on that hope list that we filled out at the very first segment in this series... If you show genuine interest in those people, they will want to find out more about you, and so you'll get the question. So, people are interested. That's number one. Number two, people can relate to your story. Most likely, the people you're in a relationship with can relate to you and your experiences. They struggle with the same things that you struggle with, they understand the concept of sin very clearly, most likely even if they don't identify it as such, I think everybody that you meet will understand the concept of sin. Why? Because it's in us. It's in us. We know it. That's why Adam and Eve knew it when they ate of that fruit and they went and hid themselves and covered themselves. They, they had this innate knowledge that they had done something had separated their fellowship with the Father. And people know that. If perhaps your story is one that includes graphic experiences of sin and pain, you may have to tone that down a bit. But some listeners might react by thinking, well, that's good for you. I'm glad you got religion, but I don't need it because I'm not that bad. Right? You obviously needed it. I don't. So be careful about that. So, then, the third thing is, it's difficult to argue with. People are interested, people can relate to your story, and it's a very difficult thing to argue with. I once heard a powerful illustration of this. Some years ago, Mother Teresa was invited to speak at a national prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C., and standing between the greatest power brokers in government at that time, Hillary and Bill Clinton was on one side. Tipper and Al Gore on the other side, she began to speak at this prayer breakfast. And after what amounted to a vigorous chastisement of the American culture and current administration for its indifferent attitude toward the sanctity and dignity of all human life, i.e. abortion, she concluded her talk. And the entire room erupted with thunderous standing ovation during which she, the recognized icons of political power on either side of her sat red-faced and rebuked in the shadow of this gentle, compassionate, bent-over, elderly woman no taller than my wife. (laughs) Slated as the next one to speak, then-President Clinton sheepishly stood up, respectfully acknowledged the frail old woman, and was forced to utter the only words that could have possibly made any sense at the time before an audience of more than 4000 people he said quote it's hard to argue with a life so well lived unquote friends when people tangibly see the way that god has changed your life it becomes very difficult to deny the evidence of christianity that it's true that it's valid One respected pastor brought it home with perfect clarity when he said this. He said, the skeptic may deny your doctrine or attack your church, but he cannot honestly ignore the fact that your life has been changed. So at the very bottom then, here's the deal with the message for today. It's that the reality of your story displays the validity of the gospel. It's that basic. And so when people see the power of a life changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are prompted to ask what it is that has made the difference. Picture with me for one brief moment a scene in your town where brokenness reigns supreme all the way down the street, and there's one family, yours, where the husband loves his wife and the wife loves her husband. And in that home, the parents give themselves to their kids where they have joy in their life and they serve and reach out to those around them with compassion and genuine love. Think about the moment when a neighbor walks and catches you before you get off your front lawn and he says, hang on a minute. I got to ask you one question. How did you get this? And you say, wow, you don't want to know. Really, honestly, don't ask the question because you don't even want to know. I'll guarantee you right now, you're not going to like the answer, so don't don't even ask. And they say, no, really, what is it? I want to know. And you say, no, sorry, you don't want to know. You're not going to want to know what made the difference in my life. No, really, tell me. Are you sure? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Jesus has changed our life. You want to know how that happens? Try that one out for size someday. And maybe, just maybe, you have someone that's willing to listen for the very first time. What do you tell them, though? You tell them your story. And you tell them his story. And in order to do that effectively, it doesn't hurt to be prepared, does it? As we've seen, the Bible says, be ready and make the most of the opportunity in Colossians 4. So now I'm not talking about a memorized, canned, lifeless speech. But I am referring to having thought it through enough to give your experience of receiving Christ's salvation in a clear and simple way that any person will be able to grasp. So this morning, I want to give you a simple way to organize and prepare your story around three easy-to-remember handholds, okay? And they're biblical handholds. Remember the image I used last week, if you were here, of Alex Honnold free-soloing El Cap? He needed secure Tested handholds to scale that 3,000 foot rock face with no equipment, right? And he knew exactly where those handholds were. He had rehearsed it dozens and dozens of times. Well, the same is true for us spiritually. In Acts chapter 26, in verses 1 to 29, Paul seizes this an immense opportunity that he had to tell his personal story as he stands before a king, King Agrippa II and the Roman procurator Festus. And although there are near, numerous details in this text, and there's a lot of verses here, His story is given in three basic segments, and we're going to look at that today as an example. By learning to use these same handholds that Paul did as tools around which to organize our personal stories, we have a simple, memorable, and flexible way of sharing our spiritual journey with other people, and we can do it with confidence. So turn to Acts chapter 26, if you would, in your Bibles. I'm not going to read down through the whole thing at the start because we're going to work our way down through it in in segments. All right? And I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds here. We're just going to show you the segments here. So the first handhold that you can organize your story around is simply this, B.C., You have life before Christ, your life before Christ. Look at verses 1 to 11 with me in chapter 26 of Acts. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. I love that. There it is. What's your story, Paul? Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. "...especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently." See, Paul's meeting him on a respectful ground here. "...so then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion." And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth... And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. There's Paul's life, B.C., The very first thing we realize is that Paul was given permission to speak. In other words, someone asked him what his story was. Paul's life before Christ was obviously something these people, especially Agrippa, could relate to. So he began by meeting Herod on common ground. He disarmed the listener by finding a positive way to approach him. Verses 2 and 3, you can see that. Not only did he meet Herod on common ground, but he clearly put himself on a plane with the rest of the Jews in, chap- in verses 4 to 7. In fact, he lays it right out in plain view that he was antagonistic toward Christianity as any one of them were as well. Even worse than they were, he persecuted people unto death in verses 9 to 11. So Paul simply presented the reality to them of what his life was like before he came to believe in Jesus. You see that? That's all you need to do. Don't embellish it. Don't don't dramatize it or sensationalize who you were before becoming a Christian. Just tell the truth and let it speak for itself, just like Paul did. Second handhold, the handhold of your conversion Verses 12 to 18, let's read down through that. While while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. What a great segment. This is the second handhold. This is your conversion experience. It's represented by the cross of Christ and is the explanation of your personal encounter with the living Christ. How you came to know Jesus and to accept him as your Savior. Don't miss the fact that Paul goes beyond just telling them about an experience he had. But identifies here Jesus Christ as the fulcrum upon which his entire life turned and the direction of his life radically changed. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. I, I, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see? He tells them about Jesus. He just doesn't tell them about an experience he had. He revealed his newfound purpose in life also. And also clearly laid out what an encounter with Christ brings to everyone who experiences it. And at the bottom line requirement for such benefits is faith in him, okay? That's verses 17 and 18, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified, how? By faith in me. When you tell people about your conversion experience, you need to tell them about Jesus. Make sure that he's the focal point of the story and don't promise people more than what the gospel actually promises, right? You may have been instantly healed of some addiction, Or some sickness when you came to Christ. You may have reconciled with your estranged spouse. Your kids may have stopped rebelling. That's all great, but it doesn't always happen the same way to everybody. So don't promise them that. What does happen, however, is that we move out from Satan's kingdom into God's family. And that's exactly what Paul tells him. We receive complete forgiveness of sins and we gain an eternal inheritance in heaven. No question about it. Everyone who comes to Christ gets that. Amen? Amen. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Yesterday at Ian Jewett's wedding, Steve Daniels, uh, the gentleman that I referenced a couple of messages ago, remember I told you about this pastor friend of mine that I went to visit who is sick with cancer, and how God is using him to change people's lives. Well, he was at this wedding yesterday, and uh, my wife and I sat with him and his wife, and we spent the afternoon with him, and. um, I can't believe this guy. Within the last three weeks since I've given you this illustration, he led one of his nurses to Christ. Again. Unbelievable. His wife says, yeah. As his time gets shorter, his testimony gets stronger. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. He told me, he said... You know, Russ, he said, when I first heard the gospel, he said, I had never heard anything like it before. In the religion that I grew up in, it was never preached that way. And I came away from that saying, how come nobody ever told me this? And then he prayed to God and he said, God, this is such an incredible message that if you will allow me to, I will preach this message to everybody I meet. Because it is such good news. I don't understand why nobody ever told me, but I'm not going to let that happen to somebody else. I mean, this guy has the gift of evangelism, let's face it. But still, that's amazing. It's amazing to me. So you have to tell people about Jesus, but you have to also tell them that it requires more than just saying the words, I believe. It requires sincerely meaning those words. It actually means staking your life on those words. In Romans chapter 10, we read the words beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So also realize that true conversion results in a changed life. And that's the next handhold. The third handhold is A.D., your life after conversion. Verse 19, so King Agrippa I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason... Some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The letters A.D., Stand for Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. In our outline, in your outline, it represents the way Christ has influenced our life since becoming a follower of Christ. So Paul in his testimony before Agrippa here relates that, this truth that a genuine personal relationship with Christ works itself into us and then works its way out of us as well. In other words, it's active. It does something. It's visible. It's real. It brings a complete change of heart and mind, not just a change of your eternal destiny in your soul. So tell people how Christ has made a difference in your life. B.C., what you were at conversion, how you came to Christ, and then A.D., what Christ has done in your life since you received him. And then be prepared to tell them that they can experience the same thing. Friends, just telling them about what happened to you is not enough. You got to let them know that a change will happen to them as well. It will be different for each one of us, but something will change. That means giving them the essentials of the gospel message Verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Can you do that? Do you know how to give people the essentials of the gospel message? Well, next week, we're gonna show you how to do that. If you don't already know, I'm going to show you one or two simple but effective ways to present the gospel message. There's one more area, however, that most of us leave out when sharing our story with people, and it's one of the most important essentials in seeing a response from people, and that is the concluding question. The concluding question, verse 24. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. And don't be surprised if somebody says the same thing to you. You are crazy, boy. What do you think you're telling me here? But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The bushel wasn't put over the light. It was set on a hill, right? King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. So that, that's a very difficult verse to translate. It could be a question or it could be a statement. We don't know what it was. All we do know is that Agrippa knew exactly what Paul was asking, right? And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Here is where it gets most uncomfortable for us when we share the gospel it's here that you must challenge the other person to consider what you have said to them personally. Paul drew a response from his hearers here, didn't he? Whether the response was negative, in which case it was from one of them, for sure, or positive, it certainly helps us to know where that other person stands after hearing the truth that you've proclaimed, right? So you need to ask the personal concluding question and then of course there's the main theme of your testimony every story has a unifying theme the story of how you became a Christian is no different Paul's Paul's had a unifying theme it's not just a string of events haphazardly put together it ought to flow and show how every step made sense and reflects the person that you are today The theme of Paul's story was his zeal for serving God. You can see that throughout this whole text. Before Christ, it was totally misdirected and destructive, right? He persecuted Christianity. But after Christ, A.D., it was positive and it was directed toward the expansion of the church, as we've just seen toward the end of this passage. So, what's yours? What's your main theme in your testimony? Have you figured that out yet? You see, people want to hear how Jesus took what you were and transformed you into what you are now. And how much better and useful that is to those around you and to the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And the best way to be confident in sharing that story is to organize it in a way that makes sense. Now... If it doesn't make sense to you, it's certainly not going to make sense to anybody else. Right? So let me, for the remainder of this talk, just suggest a few tips on what you can do. And then we're going to give you an example of it. So before you came in, or as you came in here, you were given a little sheet of paper um, that talks about how to organize your story. So... This is what I want to leave you with. First of all, write your story out. And that's what the handout is for. The whole thing's got the handholds on there for the three things. B.C., before Christ. You know, where were you spiritually before receiving Christ? How did it affect you? You know, if you became a Christian as a young child, you may not have a lot to say in this segment. Okay? But you can start by asking yourself the next question. What caused you to begin considering Christ as a solution to your needs? Because all of us have to come to the foot of the cross, no matter how old we are, right? In order to receive Christ. The, BC, uh, the conversion part, you know, specifically how you received Christ. It's all there in your handout. And the AD part, after uh, you received Christ, how your life began to change. So, write your story out. Now, Trust me, on the front of this little handout that I gave you, it says very clearly, this is just a simple tool. It's just a tool. The Holy Spirit's the one that has to drive this whole deal, right? I'm just giving you something that you can use to focus on. So write your story out. Number two, tell your story straight. Putting your story together is one thing. Presenting it to someone is another The Holy Spirit's obviously the ultimate guide in how this is presented. But face it, folks, we've all been in places where the person sharing their story is simply rambling on and on and on and on and on, right? There's no organized thought. The words are churchy. The scripture is preachy. And you get the impression that the person that is talking to you has no interest in you whatsoever. They just have a soapbox that they're on and they want to blurt it all out while they've got you pigeonholed in a corner somewhere. The Holy Spirit's character is not self-serving. And nor is it confusing. There's a gigantic difference between allowing the Holy Spirit to direct our words and simply winging it, my friends. Okay, don't use the Holy Spirit as an excuse for your lack of preparation. He wants to use the sharpest tool that he can to cut through the walls of resistance of this culture. Amen? So, prepare it. It is with that intent that I share the following suggestions for making your story compelling. Okay, number one, focus your theme. Focus your theme. Your theme is the central issue in your life. The major thread woven throughout the story that shows contrast in your spiritual outlook before and after your conversion. It's very personal to you. Don't take someone else's idea and mimic that. If it's not from your own experience and your own heart, it's going to sound fake and people will know that, right? So focus your theme. Secondly, highlight your conversion. Keep it simple, clear, repeatable. Paul doesn't give a vague account of his conversion. I once was lost, but now I'm found type of a deal. He gave specifics of how his life changed. And your story should be specific, but not bogged down in too many details. Thirdly, personalize your conclusion. That's the whole idea of the concluding question. End your story with a question that draws out some sort of response. And be honest about it. Don't try to put another notch in your belt, but ask a personal question to the person to find out if they understood what you just said. Fourthly, make Scripture real. If you're going to use Scripture in your story with unbelievers, don't just rattle off some King James Version memory verse that they won't even understand. Give it to them in your own words. Because everything we say must be consistent with what the Bible teaches. But please, instead of just reciting it like rote, practice instead revealing it. Revealing it. You'll get a lot farther with people. Famous religious skeptic of the 18th century, David Hume, shocked his liberal friends when he began to attend an evangelical church. Each Sunday, he would listen to John Brown, one of the most powerful preachers in all of Scotland. Brown unashamedly declared the gospel and the truth of the scriptures. And at dinner one evening, friends began to give this David Hume a hard time for his recent church attendance. And this is what Hume replied to his skeptic friends. He said, quote, I don't believe everything he says, but he lives everything he believes. I don't believe everything he says, but he lives everything he believes. That's a testimony right there. And then watch your language. Watch your language. What do I mean by that? Well, avoid the use of Christianese or churchy type language. You know what I mean? Like learn to speak normal language with people instead of church talk. you got to put on a different hat Don't use religious cliches that people out in the world don't even understand, because the longer we are Christians, the harder this becomes, right? It's true, isn't it? We Christians often develop our own language, which non church people do not understand. They don't understand it is an illustration, the Los Angeles Times recently printed a sampling of signs from around the world that attempted to communicate in English. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but in a hotel elevator in Paris, it says this, Please leave your values at the front desk. <laughs> Some things don't translate well, right? From one language to another. A hotel in Zurich. Because of the impropriety of entertaining guests of the opposite sex in the bedroom, it is suggested that the lobby be used for this purpose. (laughs) On the door of a Moscow Inn, if this is your first visit to Russia, you are welcome to it. In a Soviet newspaper, there will be a Moscow exhibition of arts by 15,000 Soviet Republic painters and sculptors. These were executed over the past two years. (laughs) In a Bucharest hotel lobby, the lift is being fixed for the next day. During that time, we regret that you will be unbearable. (laughs) See, what we intend to say to people... And what others hear us saying, they don't always turn out to be the same thing, do they? We need to pray that God will help us clearly communicate the gospel. Some things just don't make sense when you take it literally at all. Phrases like, you need to get into the word. What does that mean to somebody who has no idea about Christianity? They have no idea what you're talking about. Get into the word. Or, you must be born again. Well, that's true, and that's scriptural, but some people don't know what that means, and they certainly have a connotation of what that means. Or even the word Christian carries an entirely different connotation with those outside the church. Hey, learn to communicate biblical truth in a relevant way, translated into their language, Nothing used to frustrate me more when I was a kid than when my parents and my grandparents would speak French in front of us. And we couldn't understand what they were saying. And we knew exactly why they were doing it, so we wouldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah, we knew they were talking about our Christmas and birthday presents. But we didn't understand them. Friends, the greatest gift in the world is the salvation offered by Jesus Christ, right? Remove the communication barriers. Not only will it show them that we care about them, but we may even gain a sharper understanding of what we believe and what we're trying to communicate to them in the process. And then keep it short. Regarding length, keep it short and sweet, brief, to the point. Give it in doses. People will let you know if they want more detail, right? Sometimes it's not good to give them the whole shebang all at once. You know, someone said that Christians have two problems when it comes to sharing their faith. Starting and stopping. (laughs) Most people want the Cliff Notes version. Later on, they, they might want more. You ought to be able to tell your story effectively in five minutes. You should. Because if you read Paul's story here in Acts 26, that's about all it takes About five minutes to read it. And the beauty of using these three solid handholds is that it enables you to compress and expand your presentation to fit different situations. So be ready to adapt the sequence. You don't always have to start with the BC part. Sometimes you have to start with the AD part. You can get them all in there. Sometimes you may need to start in a different place. But be prepared to start at any point in the story. And then put others first. That's the big thing. This principle comes up again and again, but it's absolutely important because sometimes we need to earn the right to tell our story by first inviting someone to talk about their spiritual background. Keep your focus on the other person's needs, be relevant. You know that they need Christ. Ask yourself the question how would Jesus present himself to this person? Ask that question. It takes some time to study Jesus' approach because he was the master at this. Putting others first, especially including you and me. So it's more important to slow the process down and help people understand than to try and get the whole story in. Here's the biggest question of all right here, is that Are you a doorway to Christ for people or are you an obstacle? That's kind of it, you know. A few years ago, this writer had a chance to become a hero. It turned out to be an embarrassing moment. He was on a tour to China. And the tour bus was on the way to a scenic spot with another tour bus in front of it. It was snowing. The road was muddy. Suddenly, the bus in front skidded off the road, tipped over on its side in a rice field. This guy quickly jumped off his tour bus, ran to the overturned bus. An emergency door was facing upward... So he grabbed the handle of the emergency door and pulled, and the door didn't open. He kept pulling hard, but the door wouldn't budge. By this time, others had come out, and they were pulling people out through the windows. So he gave up on the door and joined them. And after he moved away from the door, another man went over to the door, turned the door handle, and the door opened quite easily. And the guy says, I suddenly realized why the door didn't open for me. Because I was standing on it. He was standing on the door as he tried to open the door. With good intentions to save lives, he had become the biggest obstacle to the door of rescue. Sometimes, you know, we want to lead others to Christ. We can become the biggest obstacle. Be careful about that. Just be careful. Are you a doorway to Christ or an obstacle? Look, I'd like nothing more than to have everyone in this room experience the joy and thrill of leading someone to faith in Christ and to watch the multiplication that follows. There's nothing like it in all the world. And every one of us can do that. All it takes is that we tell our story and point people to the door. And so, I want to show you that because there are a couple in our church that have a great testimony. And I've been wanting to get them up here to tell you their testimony. One of them grew up in this church I think he's pretty excited about telling his story and nervous about it as well. I've asked them to share their story in five minutes. And so I'm going to invite Haley and Jeff Culpitz to share their story. So uh, I grew up in a Christian home,
1: so the before Christ was a little bit different for me because as long as I remember, I knew Christ. Um, I remember at the age of six, uh, sharing the gospel with my little sister who was probably only two or three at the time because I wanted her to... Go to heaven with me too. Yeah. So that's just the, that's the culture that I grew up in. Uh, I remember on Sundays we would come into church, and I'm part of a large family. So there were seven of us kids, and my parents, and the nine of us, we'd walk in those doors and we'd waddle behind my mom like a flock of ducklings. We'd come into the pews and we'd sit and we'd take up an entire pew. Uh, we'd fill it end to end, and uh, every week we'd do that. Now, Being part of a large family was great. Uh, It was also, albeit interesting, so I'm the second youngest. I have a lot of older siblings who all happen to be varsity athletes, high honors, um, you know, top of their class, and then there was me. (laughs) Um, And going into high school was a bit of a struggle for me because for a while I was known as Matt's little brother, or I was known as Andrew's little brother, or worst of all, if they couldn't remember my name, they just called me uh, one of the twins. So I, I worked really hard to make a name for myself to build up this reputation uh, to be known as Jeff Colpitz, the, someone else. Um, and so I was known as the kind and the thoughtful and the good Christian kid. Now, in the outside, that seemed great. Uh, but in reality, I had built up this image that I was too afraid to lose. Now, you know, on the inside, I was struggling deeply. I was struggling with pornography I was struggling with homosexuality, and I knew that I was forgiven, but the weight of my sin and the shame that I felt had drastic effects on my relationship with God, and I knew that he loved me, but to me it seemed stern and it seemed like a disappointed love. And I hid myself from game, or God, I was ashamed. I didn't read my Bible, and I tried not to pay attention during the sermons because I didn't want to be convicted of my sin. So, in college, I had discovered um, I had to start building up my image all over again. So, uh, I found Campus Crusade for Christ just as a way to meet people, and I decided to go to the annual fall retreat. Uh, When I agreed to go, go, I had told God, I'll follow you, but uh, these secrets are going to go to the grave with me. I'm not going to tell anyone about this. And that's funny saying that now. Um, The last night there, the men and women went into different buildings, and we had a time of confession with one another. As a Protestant, I didn't even know we did that, but my idea of confession was not uh, what we did there. My idea of confession was going into a booth and saying a few things and then going home. But I was surrounded by men that I respected and men that I loved and men that I knew had a genuine love for God. They just stood out. And the first person shared their hand and they said, I've been struggling with pornography. And I was shocked because I had never thought another Christian could struggle with something so bad like me. And that's when I realized I I wasn't a good Christian, that I was pretending to be. I was a broken Christian. The weight of my sin was again revealed to me, but this time I knew that my Savior's love was real and it was deep and it was powerful. Christ lived the perfect life because I couldn't. He died on that cross and he forgave me and he was raised after three days so that I could have a relationship with him and it clicked in that moment. Now these secrets that I was prepared to take to the grave, I now freely share. I don't want anyone in this church to know that I struggled with pornography or that I struggled with homosexuality and here I am today. God renewed my faith that day and he provided a loving wife who I could be totally open and honest about these things with And you know, my prayer is that he uses my story to renew others. Do you think that your sin is too disgusting to share? If you're a high schooler here right now, I was in your shoes and I was sitting in those seats and I was thinking that. I thought that my sin was too disgusting to share, that my sin was going to go to the grave with me. But just know that God is faithful and the Bible says he is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And, you know, there's a lot more to my story that I would love to share with you. And I'm a sucker for coffee and breakfast. So if you want to chat, we can chat after. And I'd love to go out. But I want my wife to share as well.
2: Um, this is a lot scarier than singing, i got to say. <laughs> so um, unlike Jeff, I grew up in a non-Christian but very loving family. Um, We went to the Unitarian Church until I was in fifth grade, uh, but we stopped going due to my brother and I having games for football and cheerleading on Sundays. My dad grew up with a father who was a minister for the UCC Church, but much of his childhood was spent in a sort of cult called the Order. As a result, him and most of his siblings became alcoholics or had mental health issues, and he never knew the gospel. My mom grew up with an abusive father, father and viewed God the same way. Despite all this, my parents gave me a fairly stable home environment. My parents loved each other a lot, which was evident if you spent any time around them at all. My dad hid his alcoholism well, and my little brother and I didn't know the full extent of it until he was arrested for DUI the fall of my sophomore year of high school. My mom threatened to kick him out if he didn't stop. Thankfully, he was very broken over his arrest and began going to AA meetings, which were ironically, or not so, at the church my now best friend, Kaylin attended. Growing up, I was your typical good kid. Um, I was a high honors and AP student. I didn't drink or do drugs. I sang in chorus and did cheerleading, didn't have sex or date at all, and had many friends who were similar to me in these regards. However, I struggled internally. I often found myself getting very attached to people, particularly certain female relationships. Around the same time of my dad's DUI, I found myself falling in love with one of my friends, let's call her Georgia, who was not gay. I found myself filled with shame and self-loathing. How could I have feelings for a friend? Isn't this wrong? I don't think I'm gay. What if people found out, yet the feelings persisted? I kept it a secret for a while, completely filled with shame, until one night I couldn't anymore. Kaylin, who had become one of my best friends, was a Christian, a real one. She loved those around her more selflessly than any of my other close friends. I was afraid of sharing my issue with her because I knew she was a Christian and I knew Christian's viewpoint on homosexuality. Yet, I feared rejection less from her than from any of my other friends because I'd already seen her love the least of these where my other friends did not. So one night, towards the end of my junior year, after keeping it hidden for nearly two years, I told her over instant messenger. I had difficulty getting it out, but she gently encouraged me. When I told her, Kay, I think I have feelings for my friend, she responded with, that makes sense, because she was around us a lot, but I love you. And later in the conversation, she said, Haley, I'll never be for gay rights, but I'll always be for you. And that has stuck with me to this day. That following summer, I got a job working in the kitchen of a Christian camp and conference center. There I met Joel, a young minister who had had a radical conversion to Jesus and was filled with the Spirit. He shared the gospel with me, and we were talked for hours about Jesus. He told me how all have fallen short of God's perfection and need forgiveness. He told me that to remedy this, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and pay the wages of sin, which is death. He told me how at the age of 33, after living this perfect life, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave three days later, thereby conquering sin for us once and for all. He answered every question I had with grace and humility, and I could see a sustaining joy in him, which was a stark contrast to everyone else working in the kitchen. Throughout the summer, I noticed my feelings for my friend slowly going away. I couldn't believe it. One day, towards the end of the summer, he gave me a tract with a prayer to accept Jesus. I took it home, sat on my bed, and realized I really had nothing left to lose. I gave my life to Christ that day. Kaylin rejoiced with me. Best friends, now eternal sisters in Jesus. My dad was a year and a half sober at this point. He had been going to AA meetings at Kaylin's church and had heard great things about it. The Sunday after I accepted Christ, I invited my family to come to church. My dad was ready and my mom hesitant, but came to support my father and I. When we walked in, one of the only worship songs I knew via the rendition by Carrie Underwood was playing, How Great Thou Art. I couldn't believe it. God was showing me his faithfulness already through my love of music and singing. I felt like I belonged. My mom felt the love of her heavenly father for the first time, and she wept throughout most of the service and throughout the services following. Both my parents accepted Christ later that year. Praise the Lord. That was nearly 10 years ago now. God has completely rewritten our family history. Where there was death, there is now life. Where there was so much shame, there is now freedom. Freedom to say no to sin and wrongdoing. Freedom to truly love without holding back. God has blessed me beyond measure and filled the void in my heart aching for attachment. He gave me a sweet and gracious husband who sympathizes with my struggles and reflects Christ's love and sacrifice to me every day. I sometimes still do struggle with some of these things, but they are but a shadow of their former power, for the ultimate power is in Jesus' name. There is so much more in this story that he's writing than I can share in five minutes but I am an open book and God's witness. Feel free to ask me any questions.
0: Lord God in heaven, we thank you so much for the life-changing grace and the power of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for Jeff and Haley and for their willingness to come and share their story with us. And I just pray for them, Lord God, that you would continue to use them mightily, Uh, in this world for your kingdom. And uh, we love you, Lord. We praise you, and we pray that not only would you use them, but you would use each one of us as well as we begin to share what you've done in our own lives. We love you, Lord, and we worship and praise you, and we thank you that your love is greater than all of our sin and shame. In his name I pray, Amen. amen.